sermon titled Clothed in Christ. That is the name of the series as a whole, and that is the name of this sermon in particular. If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We're okay with this now? Good. Galatians chapter 3, it's on page 973 of the Blue Pew Bibles, or you can follow along in your own Bibles, or it's printed in the bulletins as well. In the first sermon in this series, we looked at Genesis chapter 2 and 3. We asked the question, who are you wearing? And we saw that we need to be clothed by God. Last week, when we were considering this topic, we looked at the clothing of Jesus, the fashion statement that is made in his humiliation and then his exaltation as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this week we look at, we look at being clothed in Christ. Now, to give us the context of the verse that's going to provide the heart of my sermon today, I'm going to read for us Galatians chapter 3, verse 21 till the end of this chapter. Uh, I'm not going to try to explain all of it. It's an incredibly, wonderfully rich, beautiful portion of the Word of God that we spent a great amount of time a few years back, I guess, talking about in uh, Sunday school. My attention is going to be just about exclusively today on verse 27 of this text, but it's at least worth getting the context and reminding you of what is going on in Galatia. There were people there who were in Galatia, and they were trying to say to new converts, particularly to Gentile converts to the faith, that in order to maintain this salvation, to maintain this salvific state that you have received from Jesus Christ, you have to fulfill, keep all of the Old Testament law in all of its parts. Now, that in and of itself had a number of mistakes with it, but nevertheless, that's what they were trying to lay on these new converts, including, amongst other things, uh, circumcision as a part of that. And the result, in practical terms, is that when you're trying to live your life as if you need to measure up to a standard that no one's ever been able to keep, that kind of takes the joy out of life. And on a human level, what it ends up doing is setting up this comparison system, a kind of Christian caste system, a system of advancement, a, a system of status in terms of what your obedience looks like and how, how many levels have you gotten to in your obedience to Christ. Paul will have none of it. And he writes this strong letter to them to combat that error that was taking place in the church. So here then, this portion of the Word of God from verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. 
So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Lord, we thank you for this good word, this sweet word. We thank you for our adoption in Jesus Christ, and we pray today that you would help us to understand your word more deeply to wear it well. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Thus begins uh, C.S. Lewis and the voyage of the Dawn Treader. Now, I don't often quote the uh, Narnia series Uh, in sermons. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is because I love it so much and I spent so much time reading it to my kids that I feel like it's known so well. And the other being that, in fact, it has been kind of a well-worn track by preachers in sermon series to talk about the many great illustrations that are contained in those books. But Given this series, and given in particular this sermon today, and the story of Eustace Scrub, it was impossible for me to resist it. So, Eustace, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, is an unpleasant lad when we meet him. He goes on an adventure, and in one particular adventure, he arrives at what comes to be called Dragon Island. And while on Dragon Island, Eustace goes off by himself and stumbles upon both the dragon and the dragon's lair. He himself, Eustace that is, becomes a dragon. As the old dragon dies of old age, Eustace goes into his lair, becomes enamored with all of the gold that he finds about in that place, and Eustace himself becomes a dragon. Well, being a dragon, as cool as it may sound, as it turns out, is not all one might hope. And Eustace desperately would like to shed his dragonhood if only he can figure out how to stop being a dragon, at which point he encounters Aslan, the lion, who leads him to a high mountain garden with a pool, a well in the middle of it, and Aslan commands Eustace to undress before playing in the pool. That brings us up to this point. Sit back and enjoy it. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, I thought I. That's what the lion means, and so I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place, and then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness, or as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. 
I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bathe. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Well, Eustace repeats this process two more times with the same result, uh, each time redragoning before he has opportunity to get into the well. The lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker, darker, more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. He had a band of gold around his arm that had gotten tight. And then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you? With his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes, the same as I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there are the clothes for one thing, and you have been, well, undragoned for another, a quadruple transformational joy, the joy to be undragoned, to be washed, to be reboyed, and to be dressed. Paul, in the chapter that is before us, in the verse that is before us, verse 27, is using a sacrament, baptism, with all that it represents, and he's using a metaphor, new clothes, to show the Galatians, to show us, to show any who would read this word who they were, how they changed, and who they have become as the sons of God. Calvin, when reflecting on this passage, looks at it and asks the question, how do we lay hold of the idea of adoption as the sons of God? How can we possibly grasp something as great as that, that we are the adopted children of God? And so what Calvin suggests is that Paul here is trying to make it for us as easily comprehensible as possible. Think 
Paul says, of your baptism. Think, Paul says, of putting on. Think of the process of putting on clothes. J. Gresham Machen says that we have here an appeal in the presence of those who were in danger of forgetting spiritual facts. That's the Galatians. That was their danger. They would forget true spiritual things that Paul himself had communicated to them. Those who are in danger of forgetting spiritual facts, the appeal is made to the external sign which no one could forget. In other words, the argument goes like this. If you forget everything that was said in the sermon today, if you forget everything that's written in the book of Galatians about adoption as children of God by faith through the working of the Holy Spirit, remember what you saw today. You won't forget that, right? You'll be able to say, I saw a baptism today. And I was baptized as well. That's the appeal that's being made here. So let's work through this. First then, our undragoning, implicit in this text, explicit in others, is that the reality is in Adam as our representative, and in our own sin, we have become dragons. Or, at least, if you'd prefer, we have become clothed in the garments of dragonhood. We wear those garments naturally. They are on us. They have become part of us. We are scaly. We are repulsive. We like to think of ourselves as not dragons, we'd prefer to at least think of ourselves as well-dressed dragons if we are dragons, and so we try to dress a certain way, we try to present ourselves a certain way, we try to do certain things that will convince people and convince ourselves, deceive ourselves, as was referenced in the confession to sin this morning, we try to deceive ourselves so that we at least don't feel like dragons. We feel like we're more dressed up than ever a dragon could possibly be. But the scriptures see right through it. God sees right through those pretenses. The clothing that we try to put on is itself transparent or worse. It is a deception in and of itself. Isaiah writes this, and I'm sure if you've been thinking about this series, this verse has been in your mind. Isaiah writes, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, or as many of us know it, are like filthy rags. Whatever you dress yourself up in, to try to feel better about yourself, to draw, try to do something that might be somehow good, God sees right through it. And he says, you know what you look like to me? You look like a person who's dressed in filthy garments, in polluted rags. You look like a dragon. The law of God has exposed us, and that is Paul's point that he's making here. It has negated, the law of God has, it has negated our posturing of holiness, our trying to present ourselves as better than we actually are, the law calls us out. And what the law of God does, as it does that, is, in Paul's words, it imprisons us. It holds us captive. 
It says, I know, and if I could really talk to you straight and clear, you know that you are imprisoned in dragonhood and you cannot set yourself free. We're wrapped in filthy garments. We're wrapped in garments of death. And the more we try to remove them, the more we try to fix them ourselves, the more they come back on us. We must allow God to scrape off the scales. We must allow the painful process. In Lewis, it's called scraping off the scales. In Scripture and in the event, it's called the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. How do you get rid of the scales? The crucifixion of Christ nails the old man to the cross. I have been crucified with Christ. That's what you do with an old man. You nail it to the cross. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives within me. Only the cross of Christ and our union with Christ in that cross can undragon us, can remove the scales from us, and then we must be washed. We must be thrown into the pool. Paul says to them, in effect, if you're having trouble understanding me, think of your baptism. Think of baptism. As many of you as were baptized into Christ, if you want to know and you get confused and Satan is vexing your spirit and troubling you with doubts, if you want to know who you are as a child of God, if you need assurance of your standing, Paul says, remember your baptism. Remember what took place. Remember what it signifies. Remember what it seals. Your baptism signifies your union with Christ. It signifies the fact that you've been engrafted into the Lord Jesus Christ. It signifies that you've got the family name, that you've been adopted as a child of God and are part of this family. Eustace was thrown into the water by Aslan, and I trust you're not missing the metaphor of this here. Noah and family were saved through the waters of judgment by the ark. Israel passed through the Red Sea. And in a passage that I keep coming back to in this, in this sermon series, and we'll continue to do so, in Ezekiel 16, God finds an abandoned, a beleaguered Israel and says to them, I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. Okay? I took you, I found you, you were covered with blood, and I bathed you. I washed you. Jesus was baptized. The Galatians were baptized. Andrew was baptized, and you were baptized. The name of Christ has been put upon you. Be assured you have experienced all that baptism represents, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Remember 
your baptism when you were feeling lost. Now, let me address something. Let me deal with a question that I suspect some of you are wrestling with right at this moment. We, we wonder, how can Paul be making such a strong, such a definitive statement about baptism, about a symbol, a sign, when he has been speaking so clearly throughout this letter about faith? He's been talking that faith is the instrument that does this, not a sign, whether that sign be circumcision. How do we now switch to baptism as something that provides us with assurance? Well, let me try to address that question by saying this. In a sacrament, there are two parts. And those two parts are the sign and the thing signified. Okay, the sign in baptism, the sign of water, and the thing that is signified. Well, what is signified by baptism is the spiritual regeneration, the union that we have with Jesus Christ. But the reality is, is that as Scripture reflects on this, there is such a close connection, there is a sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Don't misunderstand, the thing signified is the main thing. But there's a sacramental union between those things and such a close connection between those things that sometimes the name and the effects of the one are applied to the other. So you don't sit there every time you say baptism and explain all of that. Because contained in saying baptism is that understanding that there's the sign and that there's the thing signified. And you understand that as you approach this. So some people, when they read this text, the, the main one before us, 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. They read that and they look at the sacrament, they look at baptism, and they say, you see, what Paul is saying is that baptism works automatically. You do it, you do baptism, and this child or this adult is therefore saved. That's all it takes. It works on its own. It works automatically. But this is an error, and it's in complete contradiction with everything that Paul has been saying in this letter about the necessity of faith and the fact that circumcision didn't do that, and neither would baptism affect that same kind of outcome. So it, 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 they say that it works automatically, but that can't be right. Others who would react against that idea, who would react against the idea of the sacrament working automatically, look at this passage and say, no, 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 no. Paul's not talking here about physical baptism at all. What Paul is talking about here is the spiritual side of baptism. But that's not right either. Because Paul can talk about union of Christ. He doesn't have to use baptism. If you throw in the word baptism into the conversation, everybody knows what you're talking about. The minute we say baptism, an image comes right into our minds that would have come right into their minds as well. No. God wants us, as this is written to us, to look at the sign and what it signifies through the working of the Spirit in us by faith. What God is saying is, I have washed you. 
I, I have thrown you into the pool. I have washed you. How did I do it? How did I do it? I washed you by uniting you in death with my son. That's how I washed you. I took the blood that belonged to you because of your sin, the death that belonged to you. I took the blood that belonged to you and I washed it off. Well, what did you wash it off with? The blood of my son. The blood of my son covers your blood. You're united with him in a death like his. That's how your baptism is effective. That's how the washing is effective. That's how you get clean. Someone paid for your uncleanness. Someone took care of your uncleanness by paying the cost of it. I've removed your blood, your scales, your dragon skin. And so now, and so now, being united with Christ in a death like his in front of your bulletin, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I've washed you, and I've made you to be an heir. His destiny is now your destiny. He, will be, he has been raised. You will be raised. You are my child. You have been adopted. Child of God, you have been reboyed. You've been regirled. You're a dragon no more in the eyes of God. You received back your humanity in all of the best way that it was intended to be. I'm giving you, therefore, new clothes. I'm putting new clothes on you, child of God. If you have been baptized, you have put on Christ. That's what Paul says here. As many of you as were baptized have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not sure. Paul might here be referencing a practice that is attested a little bit later in the history of the church, but could have been going on earlier, and we just don't have attestation of it. But there was a practice in the early church at some point of a baptismal service in which they came in certain clothes, old clothes, if you will. Those clothes were taken off. Baptism was applied, and then a new robe was put on a person. Paul could be visualizing that, saying, you've put on Christ. He could be thinking about the pattern that existed in the Roman world, whereby when a child was underaged and under a guardian or a tutor, they did not yet wear what was given to them at the age of transition, namely the toga of manhood. The old clothes, the old guardianship doesn't belong to you anymore. I'm giving you the cloak, the robe of Christ, of manhood, put on Christ. Or, in fact, Paul may be referencing the many places that this idea is found in the Old Testament. So, the verse that we read earlier from Ezekiel chapter 16, I found you, you were bloody, I washed you, anointed you. Immediately what follows that in Ezekiel 16 is I clothed you with embroidered cloth. I wrapped you in fine linen. 
That's what I did when I found you. Isaiah 61 is the passage that we read earlier in the service. And basically what it says is in this day of the Lord, right, when Jesus comes, he quotes this passage right at the outset of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, after the baptism, after the anointing of the Holy Spirit that takes in this baptism, Jesus comes and reads this section of Scripture and says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news. Therefore, get rid of the old garments, the garments in Isaiah 61 of mourning, the garments of a faint spirit. I'm giving you a beautiful headdress, verse 3. I'm giving you garments of praise. I'm clothing you, verse 10, with the garments of salvation. I'm covering you, verse 10 again, with the robe of righteousness. All of those are images, but here in Galatians 3, Paul takes it to the highest level that he can possibly take it to when he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on not the garments of salvation, not the garments of praise, not the garments of joy. You've put on Christ. Christ himself is on you. Christ himself has become your clothing. His clothes have become your clothes. The lamb who was slain, he has become your robe. He has become your garments. Forget the old clothes. Forget the scales that used to belong to us. Forget the nakedness. Forget whatever clothes you are wearing at this particular moment, you, child of God, are clothed in Christ. You wear Jesus Christ himself in his humiliation, in his exaltation, all the things that we considered last week. You wear Christ in his beauty, in his perfection, in his holiness, you wear the love of Jesus Christ. You wear the love that he has for you. You wear the love that he has for his Father. You wear the love that the Father has for the Son. That's on you. That is on you. As many of you as were baptized, as many of you as were baptized have put on Christ. So that means, and I'm just trying to recast a phrase that all of us have heard a lot of times, but now recast it just a moment. That means that when the Father looks at you, when he turns his gaze upon you, he looks and he goes, I recognize that. That's the one I love. That's my beloved son you're wearing. What he sees is his beloved Son, Jesus. And because of that, certainly not because of anything in us, because in ourselves we are scrubs, Eustace, scrub, your name, scrub. Those of you in the medical profession can think of a dirty pair of scrubs. In and of ourselves, we are scrubs. 
but because of the fact that we wear through our baptism the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen carefully, you who are youngish, a little younger. Because of the fact that you wear Jesus Christ, you are beautiful. You are beautiful in every single way that God looks at you. Not because in and of yourself you are beautiful, but because of the one in whom you are clothed. No matter what the accuser of the brethren says to you, you are beautiful because you are bedecked in the headdress, in the robes, in the sandals of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter whether you are Jewish or Greek. It doesn't matter whether you are slave or free. It doesn't matter whether you are young or old. It doesn't matter if you are male or female. It doesn't matter. We are all one in Jesus Christ. What status is there above the beloved children of God? There's no status comparison between us because we have the highest status. We have the robe that costs the most in the universe, the robe of Jesus Christ. What more can we possibly be given? Is there a greater investiture than to have Jesus Christ draped upon us? Brothers and sisters, ponder it. Let it fill your minds. Think of it this week. Think of it this week when you get dressed, when you get undressed, when you get in the shower, when you remember this baptism. As many of you as were baptized into Christ, the sign and the greater thing, the thing signified, have been undragoned, have been washed, have been reboyed, regirled, have been clothed in Christ. You saw it in Andrew today, and I bet you believed it. Will you believe it of you? Will you believe it? That through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, signified by your baptism, you are dressed in Jesus Christ. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. You're wearing Jesus. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, the splendor of Christ's holiness draped over you. Lord Jesus, we believe, but it's almost too much to believe. Thank you for condescending. Jesus, for becoming incarnate, for instituting baptism, for sending your Spirit for allowing us to be clothed in you. Now help us to remember it, because you know how often we forget it.
We pray in your name. Amen.